I'm going to read from you our, uh, from Deuteronomy 28, and I'm just going to pick a few excerpts out of the chapter. I'm going to skip through as I go. I'm not going to read every piece of it. I just want you to get the feel of it and help your mind contextually just get back into what were the promises that Israel failed in that God had to discipline them and why, okay? Because I do think, although we did a little bit of context setting in our week uh, one lesson, we did not go back to this. And for some people, that it's important to do that. They just, they don't have this full picture yet. So let me do that. Deuteronomy 28, it says in verses 1 and 2, Now it shall be, if you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments, which I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. Think of that. I'm going to set you high above all the nations of the earth. All these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord your God. So in verse 10, then dropping down to 10 through 14, he says, So all the people of the earth will see that you are called by the name of the Lord. Now that is significant, right? Because what is our key repeated phrase in Ezekiel? And then you will know that I am the Lord, right? Okay, so, so all the peoples of the earth will see that you are, you are called by my name to become one in covenant. And he says, and, and they will be afraid of you. The Lord will make you abound in prosperity in the offspring of your body, in the offspring of your beast, in the produce of your ground, in the lamb which the Lord swore to your fathers to give you. The Lord will open for you his good storehouse, the heavens to give rain to your land in its season, and to bless all the work of your hand. And you shall uh, lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. The Lord will make you the head and not the tail, and you only will be above, and you will not be underneath. And if you listen to the commandments of the Lord your God, which I charge you today, to solemnly observe them, and do not turn aside from any of the words which I command you today, to the right or to the left, or to go after them, or to serve them. But, now, he, now this is what he's going to do. He says, I will do these things for you if you will obey. This will be the blessing to you. But, now verse 15, he makes the flip side of the statement, which is very interesting to me because he only spends the first 14 verses giving them the blessing statements, which are abundant, by the way. But then he goes starting at verse 14 all the way to the end, which is like, well, it's more at least 45 verses or maybe more. Um, it, it's, he really expounds it on what's going to happen, though, if they don't. Okay, All the warnings. But it shall come about if you do not obey the Lord your God to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes, which I charge you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. The Lord shall cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You will go out one, one way against them, but you will flee seven ways before them. In other words, they'll begin to charge and all of a sudden they'll scatter and run because of fear in the midst of their battles. Um, all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. In verse 25, it says, And the Lord shall cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You will go out one way against them. You will flee them. Okay, I'm sorry. I read that twice. And you will be an example of terror to all the kingdoms of the earth. It's a repeated statement in there. Then you drop to 36 and, and 37, and he says, And the Lord will bring you and your king, whom you set over you, you set over you. Did you catch that? To a nation which neither you nor your fathers have known, and there you shall serve other gods, wood and stone, and you shall become a horror 
a proverb and a taunt among all the peoples where the Lord uh, drives you. And in verse 45, and he says, So all these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you until you are destroyed, because you would not obey the Lord your God by keeping his commandments and his statutes which he commanded you. In other words, because you will have broken covenant. Therefore, then I will bring these, these curses upon you. This is just a little kind of conclusion statement that I typed up. It says, but if you break covenant, you will suffer just consequences. In covenant, two become as one and therefore represent each other. God's holy name is at stake before the eyes of the whole world. Israel was told that they cannot misrepresent or slander his name and not expect him to judge or to discipline. Okay? If you break that covenant, now, now think about that in relationship to us today. Are we in covenant with God? Yeah. Is our God the same as he was back then? Okay, so what do you think God expects from you and I today? Obedience. Obedience. Now, are we still under the law in the same way that Israel was? No, of course not. However, are the principles of righteous living still expected? Yes. yes. Why? There you go, because we represent it, because two have become one. And in that relationship, there's an, a oneness of identity. And so just as we are to represent him before the world, Israel was. They were the kind of the foreshadow of what we're in now. They were there to show and demonstrate to us what, God, what God's righteous standards were. How would man even know what's righteous if God had not written his laws and given a people a standard of living by which the rest of us could look upon that and say that those things are good. Now, are we tied to the letter of the law, however, the same kind of things that the Jews had to do? No. What parts of the old covenant are we freed from? The, many of the rituals, right? Things that ha- pertain to temple. Right? Things that pertain to the temple worship specifically. One most important one we no longer have to do, which is no more sacrifices for us. Isn't that awesome? Praise God. Um, so if, as we wa- walk through the book of Ezekiel part two, one of the things that we just need to keep reflecting back on is understanding who Israel is, how, you know, what it was that God had designed them to be as a nation? Why did God create a nation called Israel and place them in the center at the heart of the earth and ask them to not profane his holy name, to represent him in the world and to be his people, right? So as we look at that, then we also need to then bring it forward to our relationship today and not tell ourselves, well, this was just Israel. It doesn't relate to us. Because there is application for us. The principles behind uh, having a relationship with God where we represent him um, uh, correctly or, or with, with honor, with holiness, so that we represent who he is to the world is still a standard by which we are called to. And that has not changed at all. Um, in Ezekiel 33, when we get into our homework here today, you're going to see that one of the first things he talks about is is God is going to, God has at this point in, in our study has been judging Israel, right? And we've seen the sieges that have befalled Jerusalem. We come to chapter 33 and we see that final siege has taken place, that third siege, right? 
And then he says in verse 29 of 33, it says, and when I do all these things, when I have judged you, when I have uh, brought enemies against you, when I have, when I, when the beasts will be there and they will have devoured you, uh, and those who are in the strongholds and in the caves, they're going to die of pestilence. When he, he just goes on and on about all these things. He says, and then you will know what? That I am the Lord. Why? Why is that evidence that he is the Lord? There you go. He's done exactly what he said he would do. God speaks. His word is true. It is unalterable. He does not violate his, his own principles of who he is. He doesn't change his mind concerning what's righteous and what's right. And he says, and he says to you and I, even today, honor my holy name. Walk before me in holiness. Be my people, right? And it says that he is the same yesterday, today. Absolutely. Now, this is interesting. Um, even in discipline and judgment, God is working to bring man into faith, is he not? Even as you see through what we saw in chapter 33 and 34, we still see him saying, please repent, please turn. Why must you die, right? And so he says here to believe and to have faith and to have complete confidence in the authority and the truthfulness of God. A truthfulness of God's word and his faithfulness to his covenant people. He asks for obedience, not as a heavy burden, but for our good, that his blessings may fall upon us. Hebrews chapter 11 talks about what is faith, because this really is a faith-building message in the book of Ezekiel. He's saying, I'm going to do these things, so then you will know that I'm the Lord. He wants to build our confidence in the fact that what he has said he will do, and that his word is true right? So many people out there in our world are not in faith today, and it's because they don't think his word is true. They think it's just a fairy tale that was written after the fact, that people just make things up and they put it in a book. Um, And God is saying, look, I am going to predict history. I am going to tell you things which have not yet happened, things that will happen. And when they come to pass, then you will know that I am the Lord. This is one, only one of multitudes of things, but it's one of his evidences of who he is as God. He says in Hebrews 11:1, 1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. In the New Living Translation, it says this, faith is the confidence that we, that we hope, what we hope for will actually happen. And it gives us assurance about things that we cannot yet see. Isn't that awesome? I mean, this to me, does Ezekiel not do that for us? It's showing us this is how you can have confidence. And it's an, it's an assurance of hope. And it's not a hope that says, gosh, I hope it happens. It's a hope that says, I know this will happen. God has proven himself over and over and over. And he continues to do that for us in the book of Ezekiel. So as we continue, I'm not going to go on with this, but as we go on through the book of Ezekiel, I just hope that you will constantly be alert to, number one, the history of Israel, their divine purpose, their in, why they were instituted as a nation in the world for us to see and to observe. And then take it forward to our new covenant saying, what of these principles am I still to apply to my personal life? What must I do in order to make sure that I am not profaning God's holy name in the world? Let's pray. Father God, I do just praise you for your holy name. Coming to know you, getting to know you better and better as we go through the book of Ezekiel. Father, there's a lot of history in this book and there's a lot of things that 
um, I don't yet understand and, and may never fully grasp until that day when you fully make it known to me and to each of us. But, Father, I do know this. Those things which are essential, you give to us clearly and plainly. And, Father, as we read through this, this study today, as we get through these two uh, essential chapters um, of Ezekiel, I pray, Father, that your spirit would fall upon us, that you would open our eyes and our hearts and our minds so that, Father, we would um, just drink in the fresh rain of your word this morning, that we would see for ourselves exactly who you are and the plan that you have. And, Father, to grasp just a little bit of that joy and excitement about Um, this future, this eternity that you have for all of us who will turn, who will rely on you, who will not rely upon our own righteous deeds, not, Father, uh, continue in rebellion or evil, but, Father, that as we truly turn our lives over to you, as we seek your holy name and as we seek to honor your holy name, Father, you will bless us and bless us and bless us. And we praise you for those promises that you've given to us. We look forward to the day, Father, when you come to rule and reign and to be our king on this earth. And we pray all these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I'm going to get a quick drink. All right, so we have got a few things. Let me start with um, a few uh, skills again. Number one, how are you doing on your... List. She had asked us to all begin, you know, continue to work on your keywords list, right? I just pulled out my old one, made a photocopy of it, and I'm adding to it, and I'm just turned it over, and I'm starting to add more on the back side of the page because that way there'll be flow and continuity in, in this. I don't want you to have one book here and then lose all that information and not bring it forward into part two, okay? All right. Um, another thing that you were to do is to continue to build on your, then you will know that I am the Lord list, right? Did this go out? It did, didn't it? Yeah, I thought so. You can thank Linda. Linda requested it again. Well, actually, a couple of you had already requested it, but I had forgotten. And so Linda texted me or emailed me rather. And so hopefully this came out to you by email. Now, Know this, that my list is just my list. And if yours is slightly different, there's no big deal. Just as long as you're keeping a a flowing uh, chart of what it is that you're seeing in the book of Ezekiel concerning what it is that God says about, then you will know that I am the Lord. What? What's happened that's going to cause Israel to know that that he is the Lord, right? So that's what your job has been uh, all along, and it continues to be, because that, of course, is one of our key uh, phrases through here, and it's really our theme. All right, now, the other thing that you definitely need to be working on is your Ezekiel at a glance chart. Now, uh, this is my chart. Let's see if I'm doing this right. Um, what I did was kind of color-coded seg- seg- segment divisions by coloring them. Do you, did you do that too, Susan? Oh, okay. It, it just visually helps, so don't you think? Now, if you don't have a way to do, if you don't have watermarking or whatever on your computer, you could just print it out and then use um, a, a colored pencil and lightly color in segments. So what I did is the first three chapters of Ezekiel are about what? You tell me by way of review. What did we see in chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Ezekiel? Okay, it's Ezekiel's what? 
Okay, his first vision and the glory of God. So he saw the glory of God and God did what concerning, what, what was the relationship that we saw between Ezekiel and God in those first three chapters? He was called to be God's. He was appointed to be God's watchman, right? All right, so you might want to title those first three chapters in some way just to show you. It's really just your introductory to the book. It lays the foundation of understanding who is God and who is Ezekiel, your author, right? We're going to talk about that more in just a minute. Um, Then the next section, which is uh, chapters 4 to 23, are, are God's word of judgment to Israel. Each chapter just progressively builds on what God was doing with Israel, how he was trying to call them into to repentance to, for them to turn, right? And, and we're not going to go through all those, but that's the biggest segment right there, which is uh, 4 through 23. Then in 25 through 32, what's the switch? Did you notice? What happens in 25? Yeah, now you start seeing judgment of the nations, he starts to talk about Moab and Ammon and Edom and, Ty- and then there's the king of Tyre and so forth and Assyria and Egypt. So all that next little segment, which is 25 through 32, it's judgment on the nations. Now we are starting part two of Ezekiel. Obviously, Kay and her staff have indicated just by the way they divided part one and part two of Ezekiel, there's some kind of a a new segment division, a new change. And it may be, and I'm not going to go there yet because we haven't gone far enough to know, but it may be that that, that first half that we looked at in part one is, a se- is also a major segment that will need a title, and then the second part may need a different title. Is that, does that make sense to you? There may be another segment besides the ones that we just discussed that I've I've covered so far, but I am looking right now, personally, I'm looking to see what is this new segment we're in. What am I seeing is, is the continuity that kind of pulls it together. What's the glue of it? So right now, um, today we're just going to begin 33 and 34 and begin to work on looking to see what the, the switch is or what the change is at this point in the flow of conversation of what's being presented to us. Okay. All right. So that kind of just talks about the, the mechanics that you've been working on, things that you've done so far. That's a bunch of work, by the way, already that we've done so far. We've done a lot of work. Ezekiel is a tough book because it's a history book, and it's a history book about a nation, and it's got lots of big names and lots of difficult things that are hard to pronounce. And um, as I have said before, I, I'm not an, an expert on the history of of Israel, of all their wars and who all the nations were and which kings did what and when and all that, right? But what have we said about that for this study? How important is it that we remember all those details? It's really, do you think it's critically important that you remember which king came against who and at what time? And what, Okay, so tell me, what do you see as importance in this book? Yeah, Kathleen. Individual. 
Okay, that's a possibility. So be looking for that. Did you all hear that she thinks that there's a switch where it's, it starts to be more about the individual relationship with God starting in chapter 33. So that's a possibility. That's a good little bug to put in our ears to think on, okay? Okay, that, that it, it, in other words, it's not so important that we remember the king, this king, Shalomaster II, and his, and his, I mean, I can't remember the names. That's how bad they are. Their, their names so big, I can't even pronounce them. And so, really, there was one, who was it? Where did she go? Celeste is, there she is. Poor Celeste. I asked her one day to do a reading, and she stumbled through every word she couldn't even print I mean I didn't blame her I looked at them and went oh man I'm so sorry I did that to you we read a passage that every word you couldn't pronounce you know so it's not important that you don't know all those details what's more important is who is God right at this point how has God been presented to us in this study what is his major title to us the Lord so what have we learned in previous studies about that title, the Lord? What does that imply to us about the context of this book? Okay, I am the Lord your God, the I am statement. It definitely co- covered the part that the covenant God, that, and we know that because I just read it to you. He had entered into a covenant with this nation, so he is the great I am to them. And he cut covenant with them, and it was a, to be a personal relationship of intimacy where two became one. Okay? All right. And? Yeah, I am the Lord, your God. So in that reference, it's talking about that, uh, by definition, the Lord is the master. What else? Other, the king. So it gives him authority, right? So in this book, do we see him actually, um, what's the right word, asserting himself and saying, look, I am the Lord. And in that, that kind of assertion, does that to you feel like he is bullying them or do you think that's him reminding them of something? Yeah. I mean, so often I hear that, oh, God's just this big old bully and he's mean in the Old Testament. He's, you know, he's a God of destruction and of whatever. You tell me at this point in Ezekiel, have you felt like God is really just a a tyrant? No. No. What do we see about him in this study? Yeah, because why? Because we have gone so far away from him. We have hurt him so much. He wanted to give us so much, and he loved us so much, and we just left him. Yeah. You know, as a parent, particularly, or a grandparent, or even as a... um, and somebody in a, fam- in a family dynamics where you have a relationship with someone that you just love so much and you want to see the very best for them. And over and over, they, they keep rebelling. They keep hurting you. They keep making bad choices. They keep defaming your name as a family member. You know, they make your name be wrecked right through the mud. And you're embarrassed and you're ashamed and you're deeply hurt. And yeah, that's what we really see going on in this book. And, and we're thinking, did God have the right, and not only that, but the responsibility to judge this nation? Yes. Why? Because he's God. Okay, he's holy. Because 
Okay. Yeah. Right. And because he's a righteous God. Now, do we not see the subject about righteousness also come up in these last two chapters? Um, Since he is a a God who is righteous, if he did not judge them, what would that do in his relationship with them? And yeah, it removes the fact that he's just. Now, if he's a just God and a righteous God, then by virtue of those two qualities of himself, he must judge. It's, a re- it's absolutely required that he must judge unrighteousness and sin and iniquity and abominations in order to stay uh, and, and retain his identity as a righteous and holy God, right? All right. So to me, what I've seen so far in this book is not a God of wrath, not a God of judgment so much, although we're seeing it's all about judgment. But it's judgment not because of who God is, but because of who? Of the people. <laughs> because of who the people have been. The people who claimed that they would, would honor him, would follow him, would obey him, ha- have done just the opposite of that. And they have totally taken his name right through the mud. And so you see throughout Ezekiel on occasion, we have seen this phrase come up that says, for, for my, the sake of my holy name or for my name's sake. I will do these things. So that's, that's what we have seen thus far in the book of Ezekiel. All right, so let's go back again and set context for ourselves. Let's say again, we know who our author is. So let's talk about what is the most important things to remember about who he is, his identifying uh, characteristics, so that we um, hold those up before us as we move into part two. So we know the author is who? Ezekiel. And what do we know about Ezekiel? He's a prophet. (laughs) Okay, wait a second. He's a prophet. He's a priest. He has been, and he's not only a watchman, but he's an appointed watchman, right? Appointed by who? By God. Now, what's really neat is in chapter thirty-three when we started, he talked about the the identifications of a, of a watchman, God actually gives us a definition, right? And in that, he talks about when you, or if you, as a city and as a people group, choose someone to be your watchman, then these are the things that you expect of them, right? All right, now, how do you think that relates to what we're uh, reviewing right now, where we see that uh, Ezekiel himself was chosen by God to be a watchman? Can you see the application of those points that you looked at there in chapter uh, 32 and why God brings them back up as a reminder both to Israel and to Ezekiel himself? These are the things which a watchman is required to do, and these are the things which I must see in my watchman as well, right? So he was appointed a watchman. By, and I'm going to put on here specifically by God, because that I think that's essential that you keep that before us. Okay, then let's look about the recipients. Now, oh, those poor guys, who are they? He are, they are a rebellious nation. And by name? <laughs> the house of Israel. All right, so this is in 2, 5 to 7. Oop, no, 
wrong way, wrong, wrong uh, reference. Let me see. The house of Israel is two, chapter, three, chapter 2, verse 3, and the fact that they are rebellious people is expounded on in chapter 2, verses 5 to 7. That's in the opening of the book. Okay, now, when are we? Here's where we, you, we worked on our homework this week a little bit. Last uh, time we met, a couple weeks back, I went through and gave you just a, a list of all the places where uh, points of reference are mentioned, ref- times of reference times are given to you in the book of Ezekiel, so that you could go back and follow progressively if you weren't with us before. But for the rest of you, just so that you would have those things available before you, and I'm hoping that those were helpful uh, for this week's uh, lesson. So let's start with the win in the opening of the book in chapter one, verse one. Where are we in history? Uh, no. We're not. 592. Now, why is that? Because Mary and I understand what you did. Now, let's, let's talk about this. Why are we in 592? We're in the fifth year of the exile. But what happened in 597, which is what Marion mentioned? That's when the second siege occurred, right? That's when Ezekiel and his... Um, and those that went with him, the 10,000, were taken. So this is the fifth year of King Jehoiakim. Uh, I'm spelling his name right. See, here's another one of those names. Jehoiachin, Jehoiachin's exile. So if he went into exile in 597 and we're five years later, now we're in 592 B.C. Okay, um, we know, so let's just talk, let's just look at that again. What happened in 605? Who was taken? Daniel and his friends, right, in 605. And then we, we start at the beginning of the book in, in 592, but just before that then, what happened in 597 was Ezekiel and the 10,000 were taken, Right. And we are heading now to where we're at here in 33, 21. And what is our reference there for time? Where are we at this point in our Bible study? 585. That's right. And what has happened just before that then? The very last siege, which occurred on what date? 580 what? 586. Okay, I know it's really hard for us because we're, we're counting down instead of up, and it sure does mess with your mind, huh? But in 586, what happened in 586? The temple and the city were destroyed. So destruction of Jerusalem, right? was in 586. So now this is where we are right here. We're in 585. We're one year later or a few months later anyway, right? And this is where we are in this chapter 3, 21. 33, 21. Correct? So on a timeline, that's where we're at. What we know is there were three sieges to, to down Israel. 
They, they occurred in 605, 597, and 586. We started this book in the fifth year of, Ez- of Ezekiel's uh, captivity with this King Jehoiakim. So that was in 592 BC when our book began. So Ezekiel began writing. Chapter 1, verse 1 began right here in 592. The fifth, that's in the fifth year. Let me just mark that in a better way. I'm going to put a little clock around it. So we're in the fifth year right here. Okay? When the book begins. Now we're where? At the end of all that. Oops, I put the wrong lid on that. That'll confuse me. Here's our clock. So this is how much time we have managed to cover in the book thus far. About how many years? about 12 years. It took 11 years to fall Jerusalem and we're, we're just in the beginning or a little beyond into the 12th year at this point. Okay? And now I, we know that we're being very um, non-specific with some of these dates because, again, is it important for us to get all those r- details exact and to the pinpointed? No, not for our benefit, not for the purposes of our class. I I will just say again, as I have said many times, but for the benefit of the new ones, what we want to do is we want to see the forest, not the trees. Because if you spend a lot of time looking at the trees, you're going to get wrapped around the axle and you're going to get lost in in all those details. You're going to not see this big picture of what God is trying to tell us in this uh, account. What kind of book are we in? It's history. Okay, let's put on here literary style. There you go. We are in, it has really two qualities to it. One is that it is history. And, ver, and by virtue of the fact that it's history, what do we know uh, about how to handle a historical book? How do you interpret it? It's literal. And in a literal historical account, what is generally given to you that you need to pay attention to? Dates, places, and people. Right. Dates, places, and people are the main things. And so those would be things that you need to be noting and marking as we move through this book. Yes. And if it, yeah, people, places, events, time, anything that relates to a historical quality that helps you understand what's going on in the flow of things. It's simply a record of history, right? Okay, so it's history, and you're going to, number one, that would be literal interpretation. And then you had mentioned it's also what, Craig? It's also prophecy. So that's he. Prophecy is also history, by the way, is it not? It's just future history, right? But how is the prophecy often, is that helpful? Getting that out of the way. Um, how is the prophecy presented to us? Okay. Prophecy through imagery and visions, right? So with, it, with uh, imagery and visions, how do you handle that for interpretation? 
Very carefully. <laughs> that's exactly right. So you have to look for, um, you know, if it's history that's been fulfilled, it's much easier for us to go back and look at the imagery and go, okay, this was this person and this was, right? Well, this eagle was this king and this eagle was this king. And I messed it up when I taught it the first time. It took me, it took me a while to get that all ironed out. But when you, when you have fulfilled history, is that not like clarity to the max, Right. One of the things that you and I can know is as we are studying this last half of Ezekiel, there's going to be a lot of things that we're going to touch on that are not yet fulfilled. And so all we can do is do our very best to accurately handle the word of truth, taking each piece, understanding that there is imagery which has to be handled, not literal necessarily, but because it's a history of something that's yet to come, there is going to be a literal reality when it does occur. So we have to carefully balance two things. Look at the imagery and say, what, what might this mean? And are there clues anywhere else in Scripture that help us to clarify it, right? And we also have to say, there is going to be reality when it's going to land on a timeline. And there are going to be real people and real things are going to be happening. And it's, it's going to be a, a reality truth, right? So we have to handle both of those things with integrity as a, as a student. And just always know, when am I in literal account and when am I in historical uh, imagery or vision? And just be careful to pay attention to that and note it so that you don't handle them incorrectly, okay? Uh, I think they're pretty obvious in this book, though, so we don't really have as much complication. Some other books sometimes, like Hebrews has got a little tricky one in it. We're not doing Hebrews right away, but I remember in Hebrews there's one in there that sometimes people take it as um, as literal, and then it turns out that it's imagery and it's about something else. So it's just, it's just one of those things. You have to pay attention to your literary style and handle it according to the literary style. Okay? All right, so... That's our context as far as that's concerned. Now, one more thing we want to talk about, and that is the, the, the major theme for this book. We know there are lots of key words in here. Why don't you throw out a few that you know have been going on so far in this book? Watchmen. Okay, we know there's the watchman. That's Ezekiel himself, correct? Mm-hmm. All right. Judgment, or anything that has to do with judging. Okay, what else are some other... Warnings, okay. And often that warning comes in the form of a statement that's a key repeated phrase and says, and thus saith the Lord, right? Or the, and the Lord um, declares, and thus, or thus the Lord says, or any of those kinds of statements where it's, the warning is prefaced by who's giving the warning. And this, well, and that's the conclusion of it, yeah. And when I accomplish these things, and then they will know that I am the Lord. But he always, almost always, before the warning, he says, and the Lord declares, or thus saith the Lord, or the Lord says. There's a variety of ways it's said in this book. But all of those indicate to us that although Ezekiel is the uh, human uh, penner of the pages, who is the author of the writing of these declared statements? God himself, right? All right. Um... So the, the conclusion after you go through all these things, we know the, a lot of the key words would, well, you can pull out your list, but look at how many key words we had. There was a bunch. Now, some were more significant than others. Uh, we saw uh, the glory of the Lord mentioned in one segment that was really heavy, and then it dropped off again for a while. 
Um, we see the Holy Spirit mentioned in this book on several points, but it isn't as dominant as some of the others. However, it's a significant event, right? And a significant um, personage. Um, we see woes and lamentations are mentioned in this book. Primarily, though, we see a lot about sin, iniquity, wickedness. And have we seen that in chapter uh, 33 and 34, even again this week? A lot of that. So I'm hoping that you probably marked those particular words in some way. Um, There's also the consequence of their wickedness. What is that word? What happens? Death, right? Judgment and and then death, right? So the word die or death is all over the place. And in 32 and 33, we see that again. Um, certainly we know there's another, uh, key person or, or corporate person in this particular book, and that is the house of Israel itself. So those should all be marked who the house of Israel is. Um, remnant. We haven't seen that come up recently, have we? But it's almost mentioned in chapter 33, isn't it? Did somebody notice it? Okay, yes, restoration, which is, will be associated with the remnant because they'll be the ones that will ha- enjoy the privilege of that. But um, he, he calls them in 22 refugees. And would you say that refugees and remnant, or the remnant would be probably qualify at least at this point to be marked in the same way, potentially, just so you know that? Because these are the refugees who can't, who've come from where? In, from Jerusalem, and therefore they're the ones that did not get killed when that city fell. They had not been starved out. They had not been killed by the enemy that uh, Babylon when they came in against them. So they are the remnant that at some point, are, at this point, are still alive, and which God begins to deal with again in this chapter and telling them what they need to do in order to stay alive. If they don't expect to die, there's something God wants from them. The exiles are also a remnant. Okay. Uh, you're right. There's the exiles. Now, it's really interesting. In this chapter, we do want to keep the, the two groups uh, uh, separate, though. The remnant who are coming in from Jerusalem and the exiles who are there with him. He calls the exiles, um, uh, uh, he calls them his, the, your fellow citizens in this book, right? Did you notice that? Your fellow citizens? He says they come before you and sit to listen to you. But then what? What do they do with what they hear? Nothing. <laughs> they don't do what they're told, right? Yes. Yes, that's exactly right. That's the very first thing we see, the exile. So the exiles and the remnants can be identified in the same way. But what's really, um, I think, important, too, is to, to, to pay attention to that word remnant when it pops up because there is going to be a significant work of God in the remnant. Okay, and at some point we may be, I don't know when, but at some point we may be making some kind of a special list just on the remnant and looking to see what God is going to do with them in at the end of all of this. Okay. All right. We also know the prophet is Ezekiel, but then there's not just the prophet Ezekiel, but who else is there concerning prophets? What what would be the contrast to Ezekiel as a prophet? The false prophets, right? And we have seen that come up before because I have it marked on my, my key uh, words list here from having marked it previously to this. We've come across these guys before. 
Um, all right, so that kind of touches on a lot of the key words and it brings you in, into context for where we're at right now. So now let's just move into chapter 33. Let's look at the watchman here. Let's talk, continue to talk about the key words though. We'll list those first. This is just helpful to those who are starting this for the first time, kind of get you on a roll. To sit, you know, when you sit down to do your homework, Sometimes people get lost. It's just, it's overwhelming. There's a lot, right? And so it's really helpful to focus yourself and to say, okay, what is really, what is my goal as I do an observation worksheet in a book like Ezekiel, which is all about these big events and everything. But it can become overwhelming. You can get lost in the, in the forest again, right? You don't see the forest, you're in the trees. So one of the best ways is to is to start with the, with the basic principles, just like counting. You start with one. One, two, three, right? In your how-to study book, they have a form, format that they say, do these things. And it's in chapters two and three of your how-to study book, if you want to pull it out and look at it again. In there, he says, when you're doing an observation worksheet, these are the basic things that you want to do. One of the very first things you do is to identify your keywords very good yay students okay so let's start with the keywords for chapter 32 i'm sorry 33 okay the watchman that would be ezekiel or and also in this case it's not just ezekiel but it's a general title that god gives us right so you want to you want to mark that watchman yes the Son of Man. Is he mentioned in chapter 33? Yes. I missed that one. I actually missed that one. <laughs> oh, Ezekiel is called. So- yeah, 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 yeah. No, I'm so sorry. I thought I went back to Jesus. <laughs> My brain. Hmm. Son of Man, Jesus. Okay, yes. All those transgressions and sins. Sin, iniquity. transgressions. Later it calls it a bigger word, abominations, right? I think it was kind of interesting. We may get there and talk about it again later, but he gives a list of the abominations that they're committing. One of the things he mentions is the defilement of your neighbor's wife. Do we in our world today consider adultery or fornication as an abomination? Yes, should. Well, we should, but do, does the world look at that as an abomination? No, anymore. I remember, you know, early in, particularly in the, our years in the military, one of the biggest offenders which could land you in a ruined career would be to have an affair. Right, and especially if it's in a fraternization where it's a military man with another military and they're subordinate or whatever, and there's fraternization going on, but but adultery and fornication and fraternization of in 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 the way that there would be a superior, possibly manipulating someone of less rank through a sexual encounter like that, that would that would doom you. But they almost look the other way anymore. Our world has gone so far from, from calling what God calls an abomination to calling it, well, that's just their personal life. That's just their choice. We need to stay out of their business, right? We no longer have an abhorrence about what God considers an abhorrence. 
he calls, he calls defiling your neighbor's wife an abomination. We might call murder an abomination. But you know what our world has done with that? What have they, what have they been calling this, this war hero who is a sniper? They're calling him a monster. He's a man who is protecting the lives of other people and serving his nation with great honor, helping to secure safety and, and freedom for our world. And what do we do? We call him a monster. But we, but we call the terrorists, well, that's their religious you know, way of doing things. So what I'm saying, and I'm not trying to make this political, what I'm trying to do is show where we are in the way that we identify what sin and iniquity is anymore. Do we stand on what God says is sin and iniquity? Or have we in the world gone over here and become very loosey-goosey? And so what we do is we say, this is what's in my heart. This is how I feel about This is what I think is right and good. Instead of walking back over here and lining ourselves up with the plumb line of God's word and say, thus saith the Lord. And in this book of Ezekiel, what is God doing with those who go over here? He's judging them. He's killing them. He's putting them to death. He's destroying their cities. He's removed them off their land. What does that tell you about God's view of how we view what's right and what's wrong? What did it say? What was one of the subjects that we are covering in chapters 32 and thir- or 33 and 34? Is the fact that God says, your way, you call your, my way wrong. That my way is not right. But what does God say in, in reply to them? No, it's your ways that are wrong. Do you guys get it? I mean, that, yeah, and you judge according to your ways. And he says, and they come before me and they sit before me as my people and they hear what I tell them, but then what? They don't do it. Because what's in their heart, and he talks about the lust that they go after instead. Yes. Yeah. Yes. 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 That's exactly right. But when you put it in the context of Ezekiel, who is Israel the nation? That's God's people who are in covenant with God who said, yes, God, we will do it your way. Yes, God, I will line my mind up and my thinking up with you, not with the world. You guys, this is really applicable to you and I today. We have so much out there in the news and on the TV and in, in, the, in the, the music world, in the movie world, and they take everything, they twist it, they pervert it, they make, they make an evil man who's a monster a good guy. And, and they wane on your, your sympathies for him throughout the whole movie, and at the end you're going, yay, I hope that serial killer gets him. You know, I mean, the guy's a serial killer and he's killing other people and you're going, yay, get him. Because somehow in the movie they've made the person that's the victim worse than the person who is the perpetrator. It's just, we have got this world turned upside down on his head. And, and that one is very obviously wrong to you and I. But go, take a step back and move it into the world of personal choices about, about who you have relationships with. And what you violate when you have those relationships. And we start, even in the church, we start going, well, it's okay. 
You know, that's his choice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, you know, there's, oh boy, there's things that come to my head. I don't want to go there, political. <laughs> huh? There's a multitude. Yeah, there, there's just so many things that we have turned upside down on its head. And our God is sitting on his throne in the heavenlies in all his glory and all his holiness and with a father's heart for us loving us. And he's watching us stomp on his word and spit in his face even us the church and when we don't stand up for what's right and what's pure and what's holy then guess what we're just as guilty we we allow it in in our children's lives in our family's lives in our in our personal life we also we don't watch what we're watching on tv we don't take care of what we're hearing what's coming into our ears be careful, little eyes, what you see. Do you remember that little song? Yeah. All right. Watchmen, sin, iniquity, abominations. Those are key in, in this particular um, couple of chapters, but in this chapter. Okay. Another thing, concerning sin and iniquity, what's the other key word? What does he want us to do? Righteous. To do what's righteous. Okay. The, the idea of righteousness is brought up in here, but it's actually not the contrast. Because in this case, I wanted to, we're going to talk about this, but the fellow citizens who are doing, quote, what's righteous, but then it goes on and elaborates. We're going to talk about it in a minute. Okay. Turn. Thank you. Turn. And another word for turn is repent. It doesn't use the word repent, but that is what the word is. And I bet if you did a word study, which we weren't asked to do, and I also did not do it. Can you believe it? <laughs> Faint. <laughs> I know. Have a have a moment. Um, but I thought it was such an obvious word. <laughs> I know. But it's such an obvious word. I didn't think it was necessary. Turn means repent. It means go the other way, right? So he says to turn so that they will not die. That's right. Okay. So turn back. So there is then a contrast, and that is that word not to die, but to do what? To live. There is a contrast, and those will both be key words also. Um, we already talked about it. He says, my way, as a contrast, my way is right, correct? And what? Your way is not. <laughs> so there is a contrast between my way and your way. And I think that's really interesting. When you, really, when you bring it down to just those two words, my way, your way, you see that it's a contrast, right? All right. All right, so let's define the watchman, because that is what our next major subject is. Yes. A couple more that are quite All right, yes. That's true. Warn and warning. And I have those on my list. I'm so glad you brought them up. Here. And then not doing it, hearing it, not doing it. So, yeah. Yes. Good one. And the word of the Lord. Good. And, you know, and there are two people groups that we should mention since we're continuing on. I'm so proud of you guys for actually saying, no, that we're not done yet. There's a lot of key words in here, huh? There are two, there are two people groups. Then um, we talked about your fellow citizens, right? And then, then there's another people group called who? No, in this, in ch- chapter 33, the wicked. There you go. There's the wicked, and then there's your fellow citizens. Let's put those up here. 
the wicked? Because if you're looking at a historical record, who's most important? People, places, events, and time references, and also geography, correct? So the wicked and your fellow fellow citizens are, to, are also people groups. And are they distinguished in this book? Yes. yes, okay, they are. But what's really cool is once you do a list on them and you see how they're defined. Yes. Yeah, okay, good. Yes, blood, and it was given to us by Kay to be a key word. She asked us to mark that, blood. Very good. Right. Speak to the sons of your people. Well, okay, so in the, in the mindset of a, of a Jew, how do they establish their ancestry? They are they are come from who your father Abraham right Abraham the, the children are the sons of father Abraham Abraham Isaac and Jacob right so when it says the sons of your people Abraham Isaac and Jacob okay that that would be my the way to best explain that he's just making a reference to the fact that these are the these are the descendants then of that initial covenant with Abraham. Isaac and Jacob, you could also take it back to Moses, who was the father of their covenant, the mediator of that, new co- that covenant, the law. All right, any others? Wow, you guys surprised me this morning. I'm so impressed. All right, we're going to take one of these, though. We're going to look at this one here. Would you say that is probably what seems to be God's focal point, uh, especially at the beginning of this chapter, yes? The watchman. So let's define the watchman. Okay, so how, what does it tell us about the watchman? Let's just define him in two or three points. What is, he's appointed, appointed. And he's appointed to watch, Right? And who is he? Wa- and when he watches, then what is he supposed to do once he sees something and warn? Wa- to watch and warn, right? Verse three says that. Um, in the case of the watchman Ezekiel, what is he supposed to be watching and warning about? Threat from who? Uh, and who's going to tell the watchman Ezekiel about oncoming danger? The Lord, right? So in his case, he's watching and waiting for what? A word from the Lord. This watchman is distinguished from the general watchman. The general watchman will go to the top of the hill and stand there and look for the enemies, right? But Ezekiel is to basically be on his mountaintop watching and waiting for a word from who? The Lord. The Lord. Okay, so the watchman Ezekiel is to give God's word from God's mouth, right? That's what he's, if he's going to warn them, this is how he's going to warn them. And that's in verse 7, he tells us that. What? You know, going back to that idea about the blood that you brought up, Elizabeth, 
what is it that God talks about the watchman concerning the blood? What is, what is his role in that? What is he told? Right. So there's an accountability for the blood of, of men who are shed. When God sends an enemy against his own people to judge them, right? If Ezekiel has not warned them, now why would that be? What must the warner, what is our, think about this in, I kind of want to pull it into us, right? We know Ezekiel was the watchman and he he was to listen for the, the words from the Lord. And when he saw, when he looked around him and he was watching the people and he had heard the words from God, when he would see the people doing something that would cause them harm or judgment to come or for an enemy to come upon them. He was to warn them, right? How does that apply to you and I? Are we in that same calling of sorts? How might you see that actually working itself out today? Okay, through evangelism, telling a person who's lost that they need to repent and be saved and need to put their faith on Jesus. Yes. <laughs> Hello, you're right. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so he's giving a warning to people outside of the house of faith primarily. I mean, his, his real hope is that the world would open their eyes to see Jesus and who he is and that he's true and then come into faith, right? Okay, and, and that we would somehow be able to make an, a positive effect on the world around us. Okay, right. Okay, now, think about Ezekiel. Is he evangelizing the nations in his messages? Okay, so let's bring it into the next step. That's all true, and that's good, and yes, we need to warn the unbelievers. So those of you who are evangelists, (laughs) don't shoot the messenger here. But I want to bring us into context. In this book, who is his targeted audience? It's supposed to be those who are in covenant with God. Do you know that the, that the prophet and the watchman are a prophet and a watchman to the household of faith? Do you know that that's their job? It's not to be out there. Can the prophet go out and evangelize? Yes. Do they sometimes, do some, does sometimes God mix spiritual gifting so that an, a prophet is also an evangelist and he blends the two. And so he does a little of both. True. But in the case of Ezekiel, he is a watchman to who? To the house of Israel. That would be equivalent to what for us? The church, right. So for you and I in application of what's going on with what Ezekiel is being told here, as a watchman, he's to listen to who? Listen to God and to his word. And then when he sees Israel, the nation, the household of faith in trouble, he is to what? Warn them. 
So what does, that call, what does that tell you and I about our relationship and our dynamics with one another in the body of the church? So how often when someone rebukes you, do you accept it gracefully? Never? Oh, Heinz, that's not true. <laughs> Heinz, you never need to be rebuked, though, because you're always just doing it right. Right? I always tell my family, I'm like Mary Poppins. I'm practically perfect in every way. <laughs> yes? Well, I'm not, yeah, yeah. Well, what's really sad is when Joel comes into the church, he's probably, although he's there to speak to the church, he's evangelizing because there's a lot of people there that, don't even, that aren't even saved, right, in the house. Right. Which, according to 34, in other words, they're not doing it God's way. What are they doing? They're doing religion, faith walking their own way. They are deciding what they think is God's uh, qualifications, and they're just doing it. And in, in the book of, of, in chapter 34, he says what, or no, in 33, he says to them, he says, uh, you're doing your uh, works of righteousness, but are they going to save you? No. no. Why not? What is it that is the problem with them? Well, first of all, yes, you are going to sin somewhere. And did you notice that the emphasis is on your righteous deeds? The emphasis is not my righteous deeds. You're doing your righteous deeds. Do we see that in the church? And is there not a letter in Revelation that talks about that? That talks about people who their, their deeds are good, but, but they're far from the Lord. They need to buy from God ISAV and balm and so forth, right? Because they don't even know the Lord. They're, about, they're in the church and they're doing all the, the things that look good and are righteous. So on the surface, they look righteous. But the reality is it's what? Self-righteousness. It's they're, they're working their way to God in some way. They're checking off the, the boxes of things that they think need to be done. Rather than doing what? listening to the Lord, knowing his word. Now, do you think that's important for you and I in the world, especially that we're in today? I mean, the closer that we come to the end times, the more destructive heresies are being uh, infiltrating into our churches. And oh my goodness, we, I I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to cause any kind of problem here, but you know, we had some things introduced in, in my spiritual um, environment just this week where I was going, wait a minute, do you know what that person's doctrine is? Do you know what it is that they believe in and don't believe in? And you're, and you're um, endorsing them and you're saying these people are good. I want you to go listen to them. I want you to, you know, enjoy them. And I'm like, have you read what their doctrine of faith system is? You know, if you're starting to quote people who don't believe in the fundamentals of doctrines that you believe in, that Jesus is the Christ, he's the only way, that, that there is a resurrection, that there, there is an end time in a literal millennial kingdom. And I mean, these are some fundamentals. And if you go on and look at a person's biography and find out that they're affiliated with things that teach things that are more mystical, like mysticism or Eastern, pardon? Yeah, yes, yes. All the, 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 what they call the New Age, which is really not new at all. 
It's the old age, <laughs> right? So in that, to me, I found like God gave me this experience just right away here before I taught this so that I could have a practicality of this in my mind. But I want to be careful how I say it because I don't want to hurt um, I don't want to hurt feelings, but I do want to teach the point. I want to say, you have to be careful who you're listening to. You have to know what their doctrine is. And this is why it's important for you and I to know what the word of the Lord is, what the true doctrine of plumb line of his truth is, and hold fast to that. Don't deviate. Don't get sucked in because what happens is, is they come in, they use, they can use Christian-y kinds of wording and, uh, um, flowery statements but they actually pull you into exactly what god says here in this in these two chapters don't do that they yeah they come to sit before you ezekiel to hear your words but they listen to you as if basically you're an entertainer and then they walk away and they don't do anything that that you tell them to do or sometimes in these scenarios the the one that comes in comes in and says oh i want you to have a closer walk with god so i want you to clear your mind sit before the Lord in prayer with a cleared, empty mind. Mysticism is saying, what does God say about how we get close to him? Be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. And how is your mind renewed? In the word of God. And how do you know his word? You study it. It's knowledge. It's knowledge. Proverbs is loaded with that. It says treasure it as if it's hidden treasure. And he said, and then I will bless you. You need to hold fast to true knowledge. And do not let anyone try to belittle you or uh, convince you that you are, you are puffing yourself up with pride by knowledge. That you are, um, don't let them belittle you into saying, well, I need to be more spiritual on an emotional connection with God. And I'm going to do that by following some kind of mystical pattern of, of system rather than what God says. God says, draw close to me and I will draw close to you. Come and lay every burden before me. Transform your mind through his word. Put on the likeness of Christ and then you will be close to the Lord. I mean, if we don't do it God's way, it's only because we don't know God's way. There you go. That's exactly right. Yes. Yeah. There you go. That's exactly right. Oh, Heinz, I wish I never raised my voice. <laughs> Yes, you lose it. That's exactly right. You are absolutely right. Yes, that's exactly right. And in this classroom, you've heard me say that before, that some of the principles about how to do inductive Bible study and what we're going to learn in this classroom as a group is it's not my intent to just teach you the book of Ezekiel. It's my intent for you to understand the principles of how to come to sound interpretation. And one of those things is, uh, in our time together, it's not what do you think or how do you feel. But what I want to know is what does God say? 
That's right. What does God say? I don't, it's not that I don't care about your feelings or your experiences, but they are, they are secondary or even thirdary. I mean, the most essential is you need to know the word of God and you need to be, to be in relationship with him and in fellowship with other believers who are also strongly in the word of God. Those are the ones that you need to pull, pull close to you in relationships. And God says we need to be like the Bereans to check it out. Thank you. You know what? That came up yesterday in a conversation. That's exactly what I said. You know, when you get a teacher before you or, or a pastor even that looks like they're credentialed and, and have you know, all their stuff together, you need to be doing just as the Bereans do. Go to the Word of God. They checked out Paul to see if he was, if he was right, if what he was teaching was, was in accordance with the written Word of God, the previous uh, historical records. And uh, Paul said of them, they were of more noble-mindedness than the Thessalonians because of that. He honored that quality of checking him out, right? Uh, so, yes. Yeah, I know. Isn't that funny? Everyone I've talked to has said that, that they were excited because the first, he'd spent a lot of his time in Ezekiel. Yeah. Yeah, very good. You know what's really interesting is for many, for many, many years, people taught, taught another false doctrine that the church sucked in and drank down, which was this replacement, uh, the a covenant replacement theology, where they believed that the that the church had replaced Israel in God's economy. That everything that God had promised to Israel was now the benefit, and we were now the benefactors of as the church. And so they were denying the reality of a, of a literal fulfillment of God's word concerning Israel and his people. How did they get around all those passages that say, you know, this is a covenant I made with them. It's an eternal one. As long as the sun, the moon, and the stars are in the heavens, I will do this. And guess what? Those things are still in the heavens as far as I can see. And, and God says of, of Israel in, in Romans, he says, my covenants are irrevocable. Right? Yes. Yes. The nation of Israel arose. Yes. But it was prior to that that all these covenants were Okay, it's a good point to bring up that, Craig, because it's one of the things I want to warn you and I of for the study of Ezekiel for the rest of this book. There are, there are many things in the, in the second half of Ezekiel that have not yet been fulfilled, right? We've hit a couple of them along the way even already, but we're really going to get into them now. And... When things are not yet fulfilled, it's tougher for us to say, this is literal, I know this is going to happen. Um, 
But what I would say is look back at history. We did not believe that Israel was a reality, and so we bit off on that, that covenant theology teaching that said we are replacing Israel as the benefactors. And we did that until God brought the reality to us and showed us that, that he did fulfill his word exactly as he said he would. He did it exactly as he said he would. And so the fact that he rebirthed Israel, the nation, and we saw a video two weeks ago that showed all the things that God has already accomplished for Israel in regards to how he's going to fulfill that, that in time uh, ultimate fulfillment, which is to bring Israel back on their land and then he will be their king. Is it true? Yes. He will be their king. Yes. He will live with them among his people on this earth for how long? 1,000 years on this earth. And then we go with him to be where? In the new heaven and the new earth for an eternity. So there are many people that do not believe that, that there's a literal 1,000-year reign. You think you're, you're getting tired, and, and I am too. We're getting old. We're getting tired. But guess what? You better, you better dig in your heels, get yourself prepared here and now because eternity is coming, and God is going to give you a job in that 1,000 years. You're going to rule and reign with him for a 1,000 years doing something. So you are equipping yourself right now for what you will be doing in eternity. Do you realize that? It is a reality that God does exactly what he says. And I think Israel is the perfect example of that. For many years, people bit off on the lie that sounded good. And certainly, everybody would love it if God would promise us all these blessings, right? But he has. Ephesians says we we are blessed in him to walk in him. That is the double theme of that chapter. We are blessed in him and we have an eternal hope and our treasures are stored for us in a place where, where, where they will never be destroyed and they will never be taken. And God is going to give those to us one day, but we are here right here and right now. And in the meantime, we are to be like Ezekiel, a watchman over God's word. And we must believe, we must first hear God's word and know it. And we must be sure that we protect it. And when people come into the church and begin to distort it or introduce to people heresies, You have to be really careful to stand up for God's word. Try to be gracious, which I try to do. But it's hard sometimes to be gracious and yet still be forthright. But we have to. We have to protect God's word. All right. The watchman. We now know who he is. He is appointed to watch and warn. They are to give God's word from God's mouth. So you and I need to know what God's word is from God's mouth. We Then God is going to hold us accountable if we don't warn, right? Do you know that part about the, about all of our life and our works will go through the fire, right? The refining fire and what comes out, we're given reward for the things that burn up are, are these things where we failed, right? For us, we don't get judged as an eternal damnation, but our works will be burned up if we don't do them faithfully for the Lord, if we don't honor him in it. Okay, but if we do warn and they don't listen, what? It's on there, but yeah, if you warn and they don't listen, it's, it's all on them. <laughs> You're free from that. You are delivered. And I'm going to say you are, you are given your reward. You will gain your reward for doing that thing which honored God. There's a reward for that. 
faithfulness is given a reward, okay? All right, so that one is um, verse 9. Okay, now I want to define here the two things. Let's look at the wicked. Turn with me to 33 verse 11. Okay, he says to them, as I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. So if you were going to define the wicked, tell me some qualities about the wicked. Would they be obvious, number one? Would you say that when he's speaking here about the wicked, is the, are these people who are overtly wicked? Yes, probably. Well, yeah, in this case, yes, because he goes on next to cover the next category, right? He says, hear about the wicked, what about them? What's going to happen? They're going to die, right? He says, but he says, and at, the verse, at verse 12, do you see that? Circle the word and on verse 12, the very first word, circle that. Because there are two people groups he's talking about. The ones who are, who are overtly wicked, they're going to die. If they don't turn, they're going to die, right? But he says, and you, son of man, say to your fellow citizens. Now, who is that? Okay, that's the ones who are the remnant so, uh, at this point who have gone into captivity with him. Um, and what do these people do? In verse 30, you see the fellow citizens are marked again, if you've marked that as a key word. What does it say in 30, uh, chapter 30 about those fellow citizens? Yeah. So would you say that they have an appearance of righteousness? So they appear that they're... So, so would you say in the household faith that, that we have a lot of these kinds of people? They show up to church, they do the right things, they say the right things, but... According to what uh, God is showing us here in verse 30, what is motivating them? In verse 31. Yeah, and the, and the things that are ex- expressed by whose mouth? By their own mouth, not by whose mouth? Not by God's mouth. So they're not listening to the word of God. They're not obeying the word of God. They have their own emotional experiences and their own way of processing and thinking about life. And then they work according to that. Do you know of people in your church that, and in your own life? And do you do that? Are there times when you say, well, I know God says this, but I think this. And so I'm going to do it this way instead. I hope not, right? Yes, Martha. Yes. Yes. I think that he. Well, he's saying, say to them, and, and them, if you follow the word back to uh, marking it, it's the house of Israel. So, yes, these are people who are also supposedly in the house of Israel. But these are the ones who are in the house of Israel who apparently are overtly showing wicked acts. They're doing things which are obviously not pleasing to God. And anybody who has a common sense can look at it and go, yeah, that's wrong. Okay? But then there's these other ones, these fellow uh, citizens. He says, the righteousness of a righteous man will not deliver him in the day of his transgression. As for the wickedness of the wicked, those other guys, those overtly wicked guys, he, uh, he will not stumble because of it in the day when he turns. So it's kind of showing you that there's, all, there's redemption for both. 
the fellow citizen and for the, wick, the, uh, the overtly wicked. Okay? When you look then, by definition, at, when you go into verse 30 and 31 and you combine it with what you're seeing up here in, chapter, in 12 all the way through 14 about the, the righteous, what you're seeing then is these, these righteous are the people who are among the exiles, but they are living in self-righteousness still. They are, they are not at that place of submitting to God's way, right? Because what was the contrast then in um, verse 17? What do these fellow citizens say? So do you see it? That these are the ones who are in the household of faith. They're not doing overtly unrighteous things, but they have a self-righteousness about themselves that what they really think is that by doing good and being good, well, I'm a good person, that then I won't be judged. But what does God say about that? Because in, in 31, he says, they don't do my words, but they're doing their own words. They're doing what they think is right, not what I say is right. Wow, this one is a great study, guys. The, the fellow citizens here are the ones who are among us and could be me, myself, and I, right, who has a twisted view of something in my life, and I have not lined it up by evaluating it with what God says because I'm not listening to God. I'm either not in the Word of God studying it, and I am, by the way, but... If I were not in the Word of God studying, if I was a person who, who on a human level, does the, what does the world say about idolatry or about uh, adultery or about fornication, about sleeping with one another, about having babies out of wedlock, about having multiple partners or about having uh, homosexual relationships? The world is saying, you are a bigot, you are, you are prejudiced, you are all these, you're a, you're a hater. If you say that is sin. The heart wants with the that is really what he's saying here, don't you think, Lisa? Oh, but in my heart and in my experience, I've seen this, or in my heart or in my life, it's it looks good to me. And that's what this chapter is talking about. Thank you. That was the one I was that Jeremiah? Every in judges. Okay, judges, yes. And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So This chapter is saying to you and I, there is the overtly wicked and there are the ones who are self-righteous. And both of them must turn. Even the self-righteous, although they're living a fairly good life and doing good, that's not going to save them in the day of their judgment. Because why? They did not bow their knee to God and do it God's way. Even though the world said everything they was doing was fine. They weren't murdering. They weren't stealing. They weren't, you know, doing really bad things out there that the world would go, yeah, that's really bad. But they were living their life unrighteously before God because they weren't doing it God's way. They weren't married before they started getting into a a physical relationship. They weren't married before they had their baby. They weren't married to the right gender. They weren't, you know, all these things. (laughs) And the, but the world says that's okay. And you are the one that's wrong. But God says, no, world, your way is wrong. My way is right. And if you do it my way, he says, turn, turn. Why will you die in your wickedness? Why will you, why will you die, oh, church? You're in the church, but why will you die in your sins? Do you not know you're dying in your sins because you've not listened to my word and you've not conformed yourselves by my standards? You've not bowed your knee. Hmm? 
And you're not repentant. You're not repentant. You've not bowed your knee to me. You've not humbled yourself before me. So there's the distinction here. So we have two groups here in this particular chapter, the wicked and the fellow citizens. God tells the, the wicked, turn back from your evil ways in verse 11. And then in verse 12, he says to about the fellow citizens who are the self-righteous, he says, don't rely on your righteous deeds. It's, it's real subtle, but once you split the hairs and make your list, did you all make lists on those two by chance? Okay, that would have defined it for you real clearly. I think you would have seen it right away that the righteous were actually not righteous. You go, oh, they're called the righteous, but they're not really righteous because God's saying they're going to die in their sins if they don't turn, right? Sometimes the wording is defined, or the, the definition is defined by your list making. So those lists are awesome. Okay, he says of them, the contrast then he talks about, tell them that the wicked, are, they need to return, uh, turn from their evil ways and tell your fellow citizens they can't rely on their righteous deeds. Uh, they can't just come in and sit before you as my people and then not do what I say, right? Um, he says, for they do lustful desires expressed by their mouth and their heart goes after their gain. It's their own gain, their own emotional. So it's their own, it's experiential, Living in Christ, which is, it sounds good, doesn't it? Experiencing God sounds really good. Now, I don't know. I'm not trying to use that phrase on on any one particular book, but I'm saying the idea of experiencing God or connecting with God or whatever. Those are all things that sound on the surface really good. But if the author of some segment or some cult or some group or some uh, new method of doing things, when you get into it, if it's taking you away from the plumb line of what God says is the way to do it, then you need to question it. Yes? You need to ask what your definition of these things are. That's right. That's exactly right. One of the things you and I have got the benefit of is Google. Right. You can Google everything. Just go online, Google it, look it up, find out. I've even found Wikipedia to be very helpful, which is not even a Christian thing. But yesterday when I was looking up certain people, Wikipedia definitions would come up. I'd open it, and it gave you right there what they believed, what they didn't believe. So you can, you can even Google. If you hear of a certain person or of a certain book, Google the author's name. Find out what it is that they believe in and what, what it is that they do and don't believe in. Find out what denomination they are steeped in. If their denomination is out of bounds then they're out of bounds and their doctrine is out of bounds. And now, I'm not saying you throw out the, the baby with the bathwater. I mean, there might be a few things in their books that are good, but you've got to be careful. You better sift through and make sure that they haven't skewed something because of their belief system, which is wrong. And that's exactly what God is saying right here. He's saying their hearts are taking them into this and their own thinking, which is unrighteous, by the way, is taking them there. So you better check it out and make sure you know what it is that they stand for and what they believe. The books that I find that are good ones are ones that are very abundantly post-Christian. Yes, and, yes. And basically... Uh, gee, I wonder why that is. <laughs> yeah. But they can, they can get us to focus on things that we might not necessarily focus on because like we're doing, Right. And then they, and then they, yes, the ones that are, that talk about experiential things, things that they experience, and then the it, the whole 
subjects is about their experiences rather than what God says, those are the ones to be really careful of. Even though experiences can be true for them, you have to filter them right through the word of God to make sure that the things that they, quote, experienced actually are biblical. Biblical thinking, biblically line up. Yes, they are. Yeah, exactly. The biggest popular crazes are the things that have to do with someone's experience, especially if they're sensational. And I'm not saying that we cannot have some sensational moments with God in our private time. But honestly, it's not what you are feeling. It's what God says that matters. Yes, they do. So we're going to move to the next chapter. Good, good leading, Susan. Woo! That was a segue. <laughs> All right, so let's move on into that. Be, I just want to close that by saying you need to be alert. And Jesus talks about that in the scriptures, about being alert and being on your guard, staying on your toes. Know his word, okay? Because that's where you, you're um, going to, you, first and foremost, you have to know God through his word, right? Yes. That's exactly right. That's right. That's right. Oh, thank you. You know, I had that one down. That was a, it was a Peter verse, Second Peter, that the, your 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 adversary, the devil, prowls about to and fro, seeking whom he might devour. He wants to devour us. He would love that. And if he doesn't seek and devour you, you yourself will stumble yourself up because you rely on your own emotions and your own thinking instead of lining it up. Why do you think God gave us the law to begin with? What is the law's purpose according to Romans? It's a teacher and it's a tutor. It teaches us what's right and what's wrong, right? How God views life issues and events. Even the nation of Israel itself was established so that we would understand how God expects us to live on this earth. How we're to be a separated people, how we're to to be careful about... I mean, every single aspect of the life of a Jew was a daily reminder of their relationship with God in some fashion. Either the way that they ate or the way that they worshipped or the, what, what kind of clothing they put on. Everything was done. So what is God telling us? Now, we don't have to wear certain clothes or give sacrifices anymore and, and live in all those same ways. That was the law. But in principle, what, what should we be doing every single day when we get up? What would God want me to do today? Lord, I'm here. I'm your servant. I love you. I praise you. I want to. I want to spend my life serving you. I want to honor you. And if you do that, every if, if every breath of your day is in some way saying that to the Lord, then you're doing what God wants you to do. But when you start doing it your own way and you start reasoning out how it was okay for you to do a certain thing, how to respond to a certain in a bad. Well, I don't care that person. They did that to me, and so that's the way it is. You know. Well, you can act that way if you want, but is that what God wants? No, you cannot justify unrighteousness in yourself by the deeds of unrighteousness of others. Just w- because w- someone else has done something bad, two wrongs don't make a right. right. WWJD, what would what Jesus do? Okay, so it, first and foremost, know God through his word that he gave us. Romans 12, 2 says that, be renewed by his mind, or uh, let your mind be renewed by his word. Okay, Ezekiel 34 now, 
So in chapter 33, we were talking about the watchman and his responsibilities and his accountability. Then we got into Ezekiel 34, and we have a new subject, and it is who? Shepherds. Shepherds. Okay, keywords: shepherds. And sheep or flock, right? And, and specifically my flock in there, right? Talks about my flock a bunch. Feed the flock, feed the flock. And then later he goes into my flock. Um, so what you were told to do is make a list. And I'm not gonna, we're not going to do it together on the board because you should have done it together. But as you saw in your list making, what, was, what became obvious to you? about the shepherds that God is discussing here and when he makes the transition to his own shepherd. Right, okay, so they're not, they're not actually taking care of them. Instead, they're actually harming them. Who are they taking care of? Themselves. themselves. Everything is done for a personal motivation or personal gain, okay? Um, so we see they feed themselves, they eat the fat, and they clothe themselves with the wool. They slaughter the fat sheep who are, who are uh, feeding the flock. They do not strengthen the sickly. They don't heal the disease. They do not bind up the broken. Okay, so it just goes on and on. But my shepherd, and when he speaks about my shepherd, how does he say about his shepherd? What is a, what is a key repeated word in this segment? Another key word. Well, you can look on the board. (laughs) I will. Do you see the I will? I will, I will, I will, or I myself will. That becomes a key, right? So when he's speaking about this shepherd, he's speaking about I myself, through my shepherd, I will do these things, right? When it's my shepherd, then it's going to be, if he's truly my shepherd, then who is it that's leading the flock? God is. The Lord is. I will do these things. So then you have this beautiful list of all these things. Now, the only thing I really want to talk about, is there, you, you tell me before I just bypass it, is there anything that you saw in here that was unclear to you that you need us to talk about? No. Okay. Yeah. No, he doesn't. And that was the, my next step. Whoops. Okay. I know. But you know why? It's only because we haven't gone far enough. Now, if we were, if I, if we were um, to keep reading and keep studying and moving on, we are going to find this this word, David, my shepherd, or my shepherd David, brought back up and over again later right? Okay, good. Let's go to 37 verses 24 to 27. Uh, Craig, go ahead and read that. My servant David will be king over them and they will all have one shepherd and they will walk in my ordinance and keep my statutes and observe them. They will live on the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers lived and they will live on it and they and their sons and their sons' sons forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. That was a key word, prince. Mm-hmm. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place also will be with them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Okay, so although prince is brought up, we know Jesus sometimes is called the prince. Okay, so it's not as clear yet, but it's one place. And it is, what you got to remember is, 
since we are staying within the context of the same authorship, we're staying in Ezekiel, right? We're in the same context. The author then will continue to use this phrase, David, my prince, or my prince, my prince, uh, David, my servant, or, and then he refers to him as my prince, okay, or the prince of the people. So uh, 37, 24, bring, uh, 25 actually brings that name up again. So just make a note in the column of your observation worksheet, put on there Ezekiel 37, 25, so you have that reference, okay? Now let's go to Ezekiel 45. I want you to read in, um, starting in, um, in verse, tw- well, you could start in 22, but I'm going to pull you back to 21. Someone read 21 and 22. James, have you got that already? No, I have Oh, okay. Ezekiel 45. You're going to look at 21 to 25. But the prince is going to come up again, okay? Somebody read the first two verses. Oops, he's going to provide for himself and for the people, what? A sin offering. Okay, so would Jesus provide a sin offering for himself? No, that, that's an obvious statement right there. You keep reading, he talks about a male goat daily for a sin offering. He's also going to provide a uh, burnt offering to the Lord in 23. In 25, it says, and he shall provide... Like this, seven days for the sin offering, the burnt offering, the grain offering, and the oil. So this, da- this prince, this David, is offering sacrifices and worship and sin offerings. So who is it not at this point? Doesn't sound like it's Jesus to me. Okay, now let's move to Ezekiel 46. Again, he comes up again. And he says in verse 2 to 8, Uh-huh. Ezekiel 46, 2 to 8. And I'm just giving you little pieces, and there may be more. I just didn't get time to do it all. But because once I got tipped off, and one of my commentaries made a mention, and I, I jumped over and started reading, and then all of a sudden I went, oh, oops, I thought that was Jesus. <laughs> David, my prince, sounded like Jesus. But Usually when Jesus is mentioned, he's mentioned as the seed of David or something like that frequently in the Old Testament. True. But Daniel called him a prince, so... Yeah, that's true. It isn't definitive, but the fact that it's... Right, right. Well, to me, the clue was when he started saying about the prince that he's offering worship and sin offerings, then I knew it wasn't him. Yes. Yes, yes. And I think I, I have, um, you know, Ezekiel 34, it says, um, then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. He will feed them himself and he will be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, their God and my servant David will be prince among them. So, uh, you know, it, it kind of sounds like it could be Jesus there in that is Ezekiel 34. But when you go on in these other ones, you see where he is offering sin offerings. So that's a checkpoint now, and it's in the same author and in the same book. 
So continuity of flow tells you now that we've clarified just by moving forward in the book. We eventually would have found this, but I just wanted to help you out a little bit because these are the kind of things you don't want to get tripped up on and then later get so confused and go, now, wait a minute, because then it just throws you for a loop. Everybody starts going, now, wait a minute, wait a minute, and they get all panicky. I don't need you to be panicked. I want you to see this right away. So 46, um, 2 and 8, the prince shall enter by the way of the porch of the gate from outside and stand by the post of the gate. Then the priest shall provide his burnt offering and his peace offerings, and he shall worship at the threshold of the gate and then go out. But the gate shall not be shut until the evening. And the people of the land will also worship at the doorway of that gate before the Lord on the Sabbaths and on the new moons. And then verse 4, the burnt offering which the prince shall offer to the Lord on the Sabbath day shall be six lambs without blemish, a ram, and it goes on. So can you see where I think now that, um, you know, I, this would be a point where I would say to a person, um, I'm not going to argue. If you want to say that that's Jesus, do we know that Jesus is going to come and be a prince and a king and a ruler among his people in that day? Yes. yes. But it's obvious that so, so will David. What do we know happens to you and I when Jesus returns on his white horse? We'll, be with him. we'll come with him. And what do we do when we're here? We rule and reign with him. So why would it seem unusual that David and we know that David was promised through covenant that that not only would he have this king upon a throne forever meaning Jesus but 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 that his kingdom or his king and his throneship was established forever as well so there are other passages and I didn't go into them but we'll do that later on when we get there hopefully Kale bring us there there's some other verses we can go and look at too that will further establish that literal David will be resurrected to rule okay all right yeah it's kind of cool so either way you want to look at it would be fine as long as you're open to understanding it could be either way but in the context of Ezekiel it looks like it's going to prove out to be that this prince that they're speaking of is literal David when he is resurrected. So what does that tell you about the time factor of when this stuff is going to happen? It's future when the resurrection has happened and when people come back and are placed to rule and reign upon the earth with Jesus. So now you've got a time constraint that narrows you down to say, oh, this is speaking of the end. This is speaking of the millennial reign right here. Okay, awesome. Yes. Yes, but of course, that's also speaking of through Jesus, it'll be established forever, too. So, I mean, there's that as well. But yes, and I'm, what I'm saying is both are true. But in Ezekiel, it looks pretty obvious to me that eventually using the same terminology of him being the prince and being put in that position of ruling over his people in that as a throne in Egypt, in, Egypt, in Israel... <laughs> that he then gives sin offerings and he offers and some are offered for him and by him and he goes in to worship the Lord. This is not Jesus, right? There's a reason he's called the King of Kings. That's right, to identify him distinctly. Yeah. Yeah. There will be kings, but he will be, he will be the King of Kings because there are going to be kings on the earth, exactly. All right, so. Now, why, why would it not be David, right? That would make sense to you and me. All right, so now, let's see, we're almost done. We are doing really good. 
All right, we, let's do very, very quickly, because we don't need to go through the contrast, the comparison. Uh, we didn't do all of our keywords. I will what, um, judge, right, and judgment. That word covenant. Yeah, land. Um, and there's the contrast then between the bad shepherds and my shepherd, which we now have determined is King David. Probably, right? And he says about, about him that um, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. I will care for them. I will deliver them from all the places scattered. I will bring them to their own land. We've already seen God beginning to do that. He's in process. Israel is back on her land. There's so much of this that has been fulfilled, not fully, but, but much of it is getting there. Um, in the, the one that got me was when he talks about them, that they will no longer be ridiculed, right? I liked that. Okay, so now let's go through paragraph themes. So chapter 33, your title of that is what? What did you title your chapter in 33? The watchman, that's good enough. Or, or the watchman must warn. Anything along those lines, you got it. It's about the watchman, right? One to six, what does he tell us about the watchman? What must the watchman do? He must warn and the people what? Obey. Must obey. So you could, you could phrase it about, I will hold them accountable. Or I will hold, um, he says it some, let me look at it again. There's an actual phrase there in like verse... Um, 11 or something like this, seven. Oh, require in verse six. I will require from the watchman's hand, but he will also require from um, the people who are listening to. So God will, hold, will require of people to, to do their part, to do their job. The watchman must do his part. The people must do their part. It's required of them by God. Okay, seven to nine, what do you see? Okay. Yeah, Ezekiel is appointed as the watchman. 10 to 16. Yep, turn and live. And that's the two warnings of the two groups, the wicked and the fellow citizens, right? 17 to 20 then do what? Okay, so his way, not your way. My way, not your way. I think that's a really good title. My way, not your way. Because that really makes it clear in verse 17. 21 and 22. Yep, Jerusalem has been taken or it has fallen. It was reported at that point. 23 to 29. I'm sorry, say that again, Lois. Yes, he will make the land a desolation. And what's going to happen to the, to the survivors if they don't turn? They will die. Right. So it, we know that Jerusalem has already been taken. Some of those out in those waste places, in other words, out and around in the surrounding areas that have not yet been taken. Right. He's warning about them that if they don't turn, they're, they're still going to die. Even though it looks like it's all over, it's not over. God says, if you don't turn, you will die. 27, verse 27. Uh, 30 to 33. Yeah, 
And what is he going to, what, what's going to happen with God's word in 33? What does he say about his word? It will surely come to pass. So I love the fact that that's kind of concluded there because he starts in 20 at the beginning of the chapter saying uh, to Ezekiel, I'm appointing you to be my watchman. You're to speak about, speak my word to my people, right? And then he comes to the end and he says, and surely my word will come to pass. And then you will know what? That I am the Lord. That's right. So go to 34, and our theme title for that chapter would be what? Yep. Woe to the shepherds of Israel. Very easy title, verse 2. 1 through 6, what does he describe there? The flock aren't being cared for. Because what are the shepherds like? They're bad. Woe to bad shepherds, verse 2. I love that word, woe. So cool. Woe. It's ominous. Okay, 7 to 10. Say it again. He identifies it as his flock. Okay, they are my flock. So woe to bad shepherds. They are my my flock. But what is it in relationship? Because if your title is about the bad shepherds, you need to have qualities as you move along in your paragraph titles that refer back to that title of them being bad shepherds, right? Woe to those bad shepherds. What is God going to do for his people concerning those bad shepherds in 7 to 10? I will deliver my sheep from them. Right, in verse 10. I'm going to deliver my sheep from you, bad shepherds. Okay? 11 to 16. Yes, I will care for my own sheep. And what is he going to do about the fat and the strong? And he's going to destroy the rest. That's right. So I'm going to care for my sheep and I'm going to destroy the others, right? And it's very interesting because it talks about the fat and the strong, how they come in amidst them and they elbow them basically and they nudge them. I think that's what it was saying in there, right? So what it's showing you is what about the dynamics within, within even a church, if we take it to today? What is it talking about? Who's the fat and strong? And what is he going to do to them? That tells you a little bit about them. He's going to destroy them, right? Okay, so that, that shows you that they're obviously not really believers, that they're going to be destroyed, right? Um, but he's going to care for his sheep. So the fat and the strong, he's talking about people who who are bullying or overpowering or dominating, right? The little sheep who are just meekly trying to follow God, but who are being elbowed around by people who maybe are stronger in personality or who have more authority or more, uh, more ability to have some kind of influence, right? And he's saying, if they are doing that, these are the ones who are my fellow citizens who, who have an appearance of righteousness, but they're doing it their own way. These are the fat and the, and the strong. And they're bullying themselves through a church and crushing the hearts of people who really love God and are just trying to follow, but maybe are getting sucked into lies even that they're teaching, right? I will care for my sheep, but I'm going to destroy the fat and the strong. 17 to 19. Yeah, I'm going to judge between one sheep and another. Yes, he did. Okay, in 20 to 22. Okay, we've already covered that in the, first, the other chapter. So if you want to say, I will care for my sheep in 11 to 16 and then in 20 to 22 that he's going to ju- destroy or judge, you could do it that way too. 
my suggestions to you, the way that I present it is not the only way. Keep that in mind. If, you, if, you have a, if you've got a system going, all you need to know is you've got to see the flow of thought and how it relates to your title. So if your title is about the, the woe to the shepherds, and so what James has said is in 20 to 22, he sees there, there God judging between, okay? I saw the judging between in 17 to 19, okay? But Mm-hmm. Verses and all that. Mm-hmm. It looks like the break really comes in about the middle of 16. I will seek the lost sheep or whatever, but then the next section starts with, but the fat and strong I will destroy. I'll mm-hmm. feed them mm-hmm. in judgment and go on from there from 17 to 22. Okay, that, that, that's a good way of doing it, breaking it. Sometimes I don't even follow Kay's uh, paragraph markings. If you don't, it's okay. As long as you see a division and you mark it, what, uh, the whole function and purpose of doing this exercise is to see the flow of thought. What are the points that he's saying about those woe to those shepherds? What is it that God is going to do with them? How is he going to treat them? Or how is he going to intervene on behalf of his sheep, right? So as you see your flow of thought, that's all that's important. All right, so 23 to 24, there's that servant again, right? I will set my servant David... Over them, right? And then in 25 to 31, yeah, I love that one. He, he enters in with the subject of the covenant, and he says, and I will make a covenant of peace with them. Because he's, gonna, he's going to, I, I kind of sh- did what you did in that, starting in 20, all the day, way down to 31, we see the redemption work of the good shepherd, where before he talks about what are the bad shepherds and this is what he's going to do to them. I'm going to deliver my sheep and I'm going to judge them, okay? All right, so 33 and 34, awesome chapters. But we are beginning to see a transition from where before he was talking about judgment of Israel, judgment of Israel, judgment of Israel, a nation. Then he went into judgment of the nations and he talked about Edom and uh, um Moab and all these different places. Now, all of a sudden, he's going down more on, a, on an individual level, isn't he? And he's talking about sheep and watchmen and the, and the shepherds and how he's going to deal with each one, right? And where the accountability lies for submitting to him and not doing it your own way. Very good. 